It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I'm a pretty big pizza fan, and these days we order everything in, right? So this story caught my eye. If you live in Houston, I guess this is a pilot project, but I think we're peering into the future here. Domino's is launching, oh, the phrase is autonomous pizza delivery. What it really means is a robot will deliver your pizza. There's a picture of this sort of weird-looking robot. It's actually uh, a car, an autonomous on-road vehicle. So the driver, there's no driver, so the driver doesn't come up to your door and drop the pie. Instead, uh, let's see here, uh, the car drives to your address, hopefully doesn't get in any accidents, despite the fact that it is driverless. Um, customers who are selected will receive text alerts. They will be notified of the location. I guess you have to then go down to the car. You track it on your GPS. Customers will be prompted to enter their PIN on the bot's touchscreen. The doors will then gently open upward, revealing the customer's hot Domino's order. You can tell it's a Domino's press release. Uh, I don't know what's next. Deliver it by drone. I, it just seems like, uh, uh, I, I mean, look, I don't like putting delivery people out of work, but this is the future and maybe they can get um, even higher paying jobs. All right, uh, I, there's a lot of serious stuff to get to here, and it all involves the coronavirus. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is in trouble. You have two federal health agencies uh, today calling for a pause in the use of the J&J vaccine. That's the one that's only one single dose. That's uh, not quite as effective as the Pfizer or the Moderna, but lots and lots of people have gotten it. It's been effective for lots and lots of people. There have been some stories about people having perhaps more adverse reactions, but I don't want to overstate that because there's a tiny percentage. And then uh, what's happened is that six people out of, you know, all the huge numbers who are getting this vaccine have developed a rare disorder involving blood clots within about two weeks of getting the shot. All six were women. I don't know if there's that a coincidence between the ages of 18 and 48. So you can be pretty young and still get it. One woman died. Second woman in Nebraska has been hospitalized. She's in critical condition. Oh, nearly 7 million people in the U.S. have gotten these Johnson & Johnson vaccines. So you could say, on the one hand, you know, six people out of 7 million, I mean, do the math. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny infinitesimal percentage. On the other hand, um, if the reaction can be as serious as death or hospitalization, it certainly gives you pause. So now we have the CDC and the FDA uh, are, are putting out statements saying we are recommending a pause in the use of this vaccine out of an abundance of caution. Right now, these adverse event, events appear to be extremely rare. Um, so it's a recommendation to the states. In other words, federal government isn't mandating that these can't be used. Uh, I would imagine a lot of states will have to take this seriously. You know, there was an earlier problem uh, with the J&J vaccine, which wasn't really Johnson & Johnson's fault. It was a subcontractor that managed to mix up, I guess, with uh, AstraZeneca, the one that's not approved in the U.S., um, 15 million doses that now cannot be used. And that, that has slowed down the whole Biden administration vaccination effort. Uh, scientists with the FDA and the CDC reports the New York Times will jointly examine possible links between the vaccine and this blood disorder, determine whether the FDA should continue its approval. I mean, the FDA could yank the approval, and that's it for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But then we're down to Pfizer and Moderna. So this would clearly, if this pause happens and if it remains in effect for any length of time, clearly will slow down the national vaccination effort. Um, so the most of it comes from Pfizer and Moderna, 
which together will deliver more than 23 million doses a week. And those, of course, you need the two shots. The, the thing that concerns me even more than the Johnson & Johnson vaccine take, being taken out of circulation, even if it's temporary, is, you know, people who don't study the details of which vaccine and what, it just will add to the reluctance that some people had to get vaccinated at all, which we badly need. I would say we desperately need in order to get closer to herd immunity and to beat back this virus largely, once and for all. If people, if, you know, one person says to a neighbor or friend, oh, I heard you can get blood clots from taking these vaccines, and therefore that casts a shadow, obviously unfairly, on both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, that would be awful. Uh, but I could easily see that happening. And you know, this uh, remained uh, a sidebar here, uh, another New York Times, so everybody's writing about Michigan. Michigan is a mess now, an absolute freaking mess when it comes to the coronavirus infections. You have a few other states where there are also hot spots, but none as bad as Michigan. And so now you have Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, locked in a very public standoff with the Biden administration. So understandably, as any governor would, but she's an ally of Biden. And as I mentioned, you know, a, a Democrat who in the past has been uh, criticized for being too aggressive in locking down her state. That's not the case right now. She has publicly called for a surge to the state of Michigan in vaccine supply. But what's happened is Jen Psaki has said, and the CDC has said, we're not doing that. Uh, here's, here's the CDC chief, Rochelle Walensky. The answer is not necessarily to give vaccine. The answer to that is really to close things down, to go back to our basics, to go back to where we were last spring, last summer, and to shut things down. Now, uh, people have looked at this, say that this Michigan outbreak isn't because Michigan has been absolutely reckless in opening up. I mean, obviously, you had the opposite. I mean, what was it, last year? You had you had these protesters marching on the Statehouse, protesting Governor Whitmer, some of them armed. There was uh, People got arrested in a plot to kidnap her. I mean, she hasn't exactly been shy about uh, shutting down businesses. But it, what's being said here is that there's a highly infectious virus variant uh, that is particularly active in Michigan, and it may be in some other states, and it could eventually be in all the states, the way these things tend to work. Plus, uh, travel, use sporting events, uneven compliance with the remaining rules. Michigan, by far the worst in the country. Michigan alone is averaging seven times as many cases every day as it was in late February. Hospitalizations have about doubled in the past two weeks. Whitmer has not reimposed far-reaching shutdowns. I think politically she thinks that's not feasible. But the Biden administration says it's a matter of equity. We are going to hold fast, says the Biden White House, says Jen Psaki, to the formula of distributing vaccines by state population, wanting to sh uh, shy away from anything that could look like inequitable distribution or political favoritism. I'm sure some people would say, well, she's a Democrat, she's a supporter of Joe Biden, therefore Michigan's getting more. I got to say, I mean, I understand, it's kind of a Hobson's choice. I understand, you know, if you were living uh, in a state where there's still millions of people haven't been vaccinated, you've been patiently waiting, you want to get a vaccine, do you want to see a lot more doses going to Michigan? On the other hand, when this pandemic started, and the epicenter was New York City, and to a lesser extent, Southern California, those areas got a lot more federal resources, whether it was, you know, hospital boats and things like that. Uh, if Michigan is the worst state in the country, can a case be made that we would save lives by at least temporarily sending more vaccine doses to Michigan? There are other states where you can barely give this stuff away, and people have complained about that. So, 
you know, I get it. It's a slippery slope. Everybody wants to be fair and all of that. But I guess my instinct is that Whitmer is right. I mean, if there's seven times as many cases there as was the case a few months ago, just in the state of Michigan, Michigan deserves extra help. And I would say the same thing if it was Mississippi or Utah or North Dakota or any state, Republican, Democrat, red, blue, I don't care. I think I understand the counter argument. I think I come down as we got to give Michigan some extra help or more people are going to die there. Uh, spokesman for Whitmer saying the state was suffering not from a failure of policymaking, but the new variants, which is why it's important for us, uh, says the spokesman, to ramp up vaccinations as quickly as possible. Um, now, she's called for voluntary pauses to indoor dining, youth sports, and in-person high school. Voluntary is not going to do it at this point, but I understand she's sort of in a bind. And just a related uh, piece here. So National Review has an editorial uh, in the conservative magazine going after Anthony Fauci. But it's not just like Fauci's an idiot or as uh, the former guy, Donald Trump, put it, he's, he, he, he's full of crap. Uh, it's actually a reasoned piece in which, uh, and I don't agree with it. I think Fauci, you know, look, he's been out there a lot, but I think Fauci is a respected voice. Uh, who has played a, um, an important role in the Biden White House. But National Review says, it's true, Fauci has had an illustrious career. Um, he is a sober scientist, but he has worn out his welcome. Uh, this editorial says that he's maintained a media schedule worthy of a serious presidential candidate or an actor in a new major studio release. Fauci has gradually stopped standing apart from the contentious debate about pandemic, lockdowns, restrictions, precautions, what's safe, what's risky. Instead, he's become part of the acrimony, offering murky and sometimes contradictory recommendations. Uh, it goes beyond his initially discouraging mask back in January and February of 2020. He says that was make sure health people got it first. Um, and then other ideas, other instances where he's kind of changed uh, his view. He would say he's evolved. Uh, Fauci doesn't write or establish the quarantine policies being enforced by cities and states. He can only advise other people in and out of government. His voice carries a lot of weight. Um, Fauci admitted in December that he had changed his assessments about herd immunity. Well, Fauci says he boosted. He says rather than 60 or 70 percent, we need 85 percent of the country to be vaccinated. He admitted that, uh, you know, he's evolved based on new evidence. It's kind of what you want a scientist to do. But I understand the criticism. And he certainly made mistakes and he's not above criticism. Uh, he's, in March, he criticized Texas for ending its statewide mask mandate. It's risky, he said. Could set us back to a place even worse than where we are now. And yet things are going fairly well in Texas. Uh, National Review concludes by saying um, Fauci has turned... Uh, into the perpetually pessimistic, overcautious, position-shifting, administration-pleasing face of the pandemic recovery. At this point, he'd do himself a favor by sitting out the next opportunity to appear on a TV show or podcast and focus on his day job. Ouch. Well, that's National Review's viewpoint on this. Uh, I think Fauci is filling a void because... Uh, I don't think that Rochelle Walensky is a great communicator. She's had to walk back two or three times in just the last 10 days, things she said. And President Biden, who might be out there more, talking to reporters more, giving more interviews about the pandemic as well as other subjects, the White House has made clear, as I discussed yesterday, that Biden uh, is not very inclined to do that. He's doing it on a very limited basis. So naturally, TV shows want to book Fauci. Fauci says yes. 
Uh, I think he often is cautioning his remarks. Is he, uh, uh, you know, kind of a downer in saying we're not there yet, we're not there yet, more people have to get vaccinated, still be careful, social distancing, wearing masks? Yes, but he sees that as his job. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. And by the way, there was a news conference with CDC officials today, and they had kind of a hard time explaining why, given these uh, unfortunate half dozen uh, cases, very serious cases, as I mentioned, that they're only recommending to the states uh, that they pause using the J&J vaccine as opposed to uh, ordering it. And there was this sort of language about, well, you know, we're looking at it. We don't want to go that far. On the other hand, it just it's a hard message to calibrate, I think, Uh, if it's severe enough to make the recommendation. um, Look, I think a lot of states are going to go along, but maybe not all of them. Um, Politico has a piece today. Uh, You know, I talked about over the weekend, it was Saturday night, Donald Trump in fine form at Mar-a-Lago talking to a bunch of Republican donors and RNC people who just absolutely eviscerated Mitch McConnell. Now, McConnell, as you'll recall, I mean, they worked together pretty well for four years. McConnell carried a lot of legislative water for him. And here's the president saying uh, he's a stone-cold loser. He's a, a dumb son of a bitch. Uh, not exactly helping the cause of Republican unity. And then, by the way, the National Republican Senatorial Committee has now, since this happened, given some kind of award to former President Trump, I guess, taking his side against the minority leader. I don't know. In any event, Politico says this relationship, it's kind of like marriage counseling, this relationship simply can't go on for Senate Republicans. Uh, It says that, you know, the Senate GOP is close to retaking the majority next year. Of course, they just need one net gain of one seat. Um, The ongoing feud between the former president and Senate minority leader has decayed to an entirely untenable place. Trump's insult-laden diatribe against McConnell this weekend signals that the GOP could splinter badly in primaries next year and raises the question whether McConnell and Trump can work together at all. Well, they don't really have to work together at all because one guy's down in Florida and the other guy is still the most important Republican in Washington. This would have been true. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of shots taken back and forth while Trump was still president. But I guess what this means is politically, if they're not on the same page. But look, Trump has made clear any uh, Republican who um, either rhetorically um, blamed him for the January 6th riot at the Capitol or voted to impeach him uh, or voted, uh, you know, in many cases not to accept his claims of, you know, rigged election, fake news and all that are people he could target in GOP primaries. So here's, you know, you have some people trying to play, uh, play peacemaker. Indiana Republican Senator Mike Braun. We've got issues as a party with the demographic trends going against us, and we don't have a lot of margin for error when it comes to the infighting politically. I don't know how that can help when you're scrapping on the margins, when you're trying to win states, and especially national elections. Now, I was going to point out, but Politico does in the next graph, that uh, the feud is mostly one-sided. Like, McConnell doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't, his office doesn't put out statements. He lets Trump uh, attack him and fulminate and all of that. And then... Uh, he tries to go about doing his business. Apparently, they haven't talked for quite some time. But Politico is saying that several high-ranking senators, uh, in their opinion, say Trump and McConnell need to reach an understanding of some sort or perhaps even resume speaking to each other, which at the moment seems unthinkable. I don't know. This just seems like a kind of like a daytime soap opera, like, 
Will Mitch and the Donald be able to patch it up? Or will their continuing feud uh, tear the family apart, the Republican family? Uh, Here's the Senate uh, whip, John Thune, minority whip. Hopefully there will be some sort of truce. It's in everybody's best interest, but it may not be in Donald Trump's best interest. Look, what Trump is trying to do is maintain his hold on the 75 million uh, people who voted for him in the election and to, um, to go after the Republican establishment. Who better personifies the Republican establishment than the senator from Kentucky? Uh, so, you know, they may patch it up. They may not patch it up. I mean, look, obviously, at the same time, I have to point out, you know, Trump had engaged in awful attacks and vice versa during the 2016 campaign with Ted Cruz. He was harshly critical of uh, Ben Carson, they made him HUD secretary, with Lindsey Graham, who called him a, a cancer and a nut job and everything else, and then they became golfing buddies. So Trump knows how to sort of turn it on and off if he wants to. My question is, does he want to? All right, I got to get to um, these police interactions because, as you probably know, the situation is really uh, heating up. First, you have the unbelievable situation in Virginia where police officers, because of a, you know, what they thought was a possibly expired license plate tag, did a traffic stop. They characterized it as a felony traffic stop. It turned out it wasn't even a technical violation, but they thought it was. But it just is heartbreaking how often when black men are the ones behind the wheel, these traffic stops seem to happen more often and how quickly they can escalate as happened with the guy who uh, is uh, serving his country. He's a patriot. He's a, a, a military officer. He gets stopped. He ends up getting pepper sprayed and wrestled to the ground as things go out of control. Why in the world? He, there was no crime involved. There, he wasn't fleeing the scene. He wasn't doing anything suspicious. He was trying to maintain some dignity. Why in the world would you... First of all, stop that and classify it as a felony car stop. And then I'll let things escalate to that degree. It's against every what every police officer is trained to do. And so the officer who did this has now been fired, thankfully. And the uh, military guy is suing uh, as well he should. He's got a great lawsuit. You know, here is a guy who, you know, I, it wouldn't be any different if he was just some unemployed guy, but it, it, it's even more egregious that he's a member of the military and he has to be subject to this humiliating and denigrating treatment in Virginia. Then you have the situation uh, in the Minneapolis area, Brooklyn Center, uh, Minnesota, the killing of 20-year-old Dante Wright, another black man, another traffic stop. And, uh, you know, the officer involved um, said, well, he meant to go for his taser and instead took out his gun, and this young man is dead. What? Are you kidding me? Are you serious about this? Um, you know, it's, it's almost like, and I want to I emphasize before I go any further, this is a small minority of officers. It happens way too often. It happens in way too many jurisdictions. It is a national crisis. And obviously you look at it very differently if you are an African-American and you see, you know, George Floyd, Dante Wright, and the whole list goes on and on and on. Um, The guy in Staten Island who ended up being essentially choked to death over, you know, selling loose cigarettes. Absolute tragedy, every one of them. 
in terms of their families, in terms of the impact on society, in terms of how it makes other uh, black people and black families feel. But I do want to emphasize these are still a minority of cases. This is not like every officer, every white officer is out of control or a racist or escalating in this fashion. But it certainly is a pattern, an undeniable pattern. That's why you had... Now, it doesn't justify any violence. I certainly uh, support the right of people to demonstrate. I can understand why they would want to demonstrate, especially with the George Floyd trial going on in the Minneapolis area for this to happen in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. It's unthinkable. What were these officers thinking? What the hell is going on? But it doesn't justify any violence. And, you know, and then you have the situation now. And, and, and last night, it was the second night of um, demonstrations. And you had, uh, you know, tear gas being used. And you had a Fox correspondent there choking through his report. And you had a CNN correspondent uh, having his live shot room because people came and started cursing. But look, emotions are running high. I understand that. In the face of all that, uh, you have Ilhan Omar, um, Democratic Congresswoman, who let's just say is not a fan of the police. First, she puts out a statement where sick and heartbroken in the closing days of Derek Chauvin's uh, murder trial in the George Floyd case. Brooklyn said a police killed 20-year-old Dante Wright, another black man during a traffic stop. This violence is a basic part of police interactions with communities of color. It must stop. In another um, opportunity, she went even further. She says we must end policing, that policing is inherently racist. And, you know, I understand she's a person of color. Uh, I understand how emotional she must feel about this. But to escalate the rhetoric to that point, I think, goes too far. Because you're suggesting that police, that every white police officer in America, even the ones who've completely and totally behaved themselves, those who treat people of all race, colors, and creeds uh, with sensitivity, uh, are racist. And that is just a ridiculous overstatement. And to say that policing must end, this is the defund the police movement, come back to life. You know, remember, it was very fashionable in the Democratic presidential primaries um, to be for defund the police or some version of that. We have to reinvent the police, whatever. And look, I'm all for, you know, um, cracking down with, with uh, stepped up training and all of that and getting rid of the bad apples in the barrel. You know, it often happens when there's somebody uh, who uses excessive force who escalates with minorities, who seems to sing, single out African-American men, that they have a track record, that they've been warned before. It's not usually a first offense. But for Ilhan Omar to say they're all racist, it's a basic part of police accusation, uh, interactions with the communities of color, um, that's not where Joe Biden is. By the way, just by a coincidence, Joe Biden had said during the campaign he was going to appoint a national commission to study police. Now he's decided not to. And people are say, oh, you betrayed a campaign promise. Okay, but let's face it. National commissions are BS. Right? You know, it's what you do when you want to buy time to really take some action. This has been studied again and again and again. And we know it needs to be done. We know that there needs to be a weeding out on every police force of people with a propensity to break the rules, to engage in excessive force, and who appear uh, to single out African-American men for these traffic stops. Most of these traffic stops, I mean, come on, you know, you, you, you stop somebody if they're, if they're driving recklessly, if they're driving drunk. An expired tag, does that really require the police to get involved? Couldn't they just notify DMV? Because it just, it just leads to all of these tragic incidents. And to have another situation in the Minneapolis area, which hasn't even healed 
you know, from the George Floyd case, and it's so much in the news now, and I think, you know, the closing arguments are supposed to start early next week, and then we'll get a verdict. It just in every way, shape, or form is, is an ugly, ugly thing. Um, interesting that the Wall Street Journal, if I can go back to Washington politics, has a piece. Look, obviously, it's a newspaper that focuses a lot on finance and business. has a piece saying the U.S. budget deficit grew to a record $1.7 trillion in the first half of this fiscal year as a third round of stimulus payments said federal spending soaring just last month. And the reason I want to stop and pause here is, as I said before, I think this country is living way beyond its means. It doesn't want to raise taxes to pay for all the programs. It just wants to borrow the monies and push the debt and deficit down to future generations. So you have a choice in these situations. You can either rein in spending or you can raise taxes or you can do a combination of the two. Instead, we do the worst choice, which is we keep raising spending. We don't we cut taxes often or don't raise them enough, and we borrow to make up the difference. And then we end up spending more and more of the federal budget on these interest payments. So good for the Wall Street Journal. You know, this used to be a major issue in American politics. If you go back to 1992, Ross Perot got in the race, and every candidate, Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush, and Perot, who ran as a sort of eccentric businessman who knew, you know, how to do a balance sheet, uh, said we've got to do something about the out-of-control deficit. And actually, for the first time in many, many years, and it's now, what, three decades ago, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and the Republican Congress did come up with a plan that balanced the budget. And then, of course, within a few years, it was out of control once again. So the budget gap, according to this journal piece, broadened by the pandemic, of course, and the related shutdowns uh, that sent the economy into a tailspin because then businesses are pay paying less taxes. So you can understand some of that. There's more deficit spending when there is an economic downturn, and that is necessary. But even when the economy is strong, it seems like we, we don't um, get back to a normal, sane fiscal policy. So the deficit just last month, $660 billion, which was 454% wider than it was in the same month a year ago. Uh, revenue was up 13%. Spending increased 161%. Third highest total on record, I guess, for a single month. So the government spending surge has been given some cushion to the economy, but it's also sent the federal debt soaring to levels not seen since World War II. Well, I happen to believe that this pandemic is a huge crisis for America that obviously has uh, caused so much economic suffering and hardship. But when you're talking back to World War II, wow, that is uh, really something. And yet, you know, here's Biden saying, oh, raise taxes, uh, you know, again, Trump cut it from 35% to 21% on the corporate tax rate. Biden says raise it to 28%. Republican Party goes crazy. Republican Party didn't care at all about deficit and debt uh, during the Trump years, and some of them admit that. So federal debt, uh, again, back to the journal story, has been marching upward ever since the end of George W. Bush's administration. Bush ended up being a big spender. He created a new Medicare prescription drug program. May be a great idea, but added to the deficit. Barack Obama kept on spending. Donald Trump ushered in spending programs and tax cuts, says the journal that widened the gap, Charlie, even before COVID-19 uh, hit our shores. So I'm glad to see the Wall Street Journal, as one newspaper at least, making an issue out of this. we got to come to grips with this. We just have to, because it can't go on forever. And one, at some point, you know, inflation gets out of control, and it's just you're just printing funny money. Um, I guess that sounds like an old-fashioned 
Uh, where, and, you know, both parties are drenched in hypocrisy on this. When your party controls the White House, especially Congress, eh, you know, the deficit, eh, you know, we, it's much more important to focus, on, to focus on human needs and the infrastructure. And look, a lot of these programs do are, are important, and a lot of them are kind of wasteful, and a lot of them are kind of make work, but a lot of them, you know, you, what are you going to cut? You're going to cut highway spending, Medicare, defense, Medicaid, uh, environmental protection. You can't cut most of the stuff the government does. But then if you try to raise taxes, oh, you know, you're a communist, you're a socialist, and all of that. Both parties are guilty. When the Republicans are president, suddenly Democrats rediscover fiscal discipline. And when the Republicans are in the White House, and vice versa, when Democrats are in the White House, the Republicans suddenly say, hey, maybe we shouldn't spend all that money. All right, enough of that. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a great day, and we'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.